Highland Falls, El Paso, Clarksville, Watertown, and from other important military capitals around the globe. Eye on Defense brings the top military and defense issues into focus. Eye on Defense is proudly sponsored by Big Sarge Pre-Owned TA-50 Emporium and The Last Hope Jewelry and Pawn. And now, citizens of Earth, brace yourselves for the next episode of Eye on Defense. Defense, 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 defense. All right, we're back, everybody. This is episode 202. It's 10 December. I think 10 December. Yep, 10 December. Early in the morning. As promised, here's the second episode for the weekend. Uh, got some Israel stuff, budget stuff, as promised. And story from Germany, Australia. Not much, only seven, maybe eight stories tonight. Uh, we'll get started with probably the news you're following with the Houthis. This is from Times of Israel today. Ten, to, I'm sorry, 9 December, yesterday. In escalation, Houthis vowed to target all Israel-bound ships in Red Sea. Times of Israel staff, 9 December. Yemen Houthi rebels said on Saturday they would start targeting any ship passing through the Red Sea en route to Israel, regardless of whether the ship's ownership is linked to the Jewish, Jewish state, as they continue to escalate attacks amid the Israel-Hamas war. The Iran-backed rebel group has fired several ballistic missiles and drones at Eliot since the beginning of the Israel-Hamas war in October, all of which were intercepted or missed their targets. The latest attack came on Wednesday when Israel shot down a ballistic missile over the Red Sea. They have also assaulted a number of ships, thus far targeting vessels allegedly owned by Israeli firms or ties with Israeli businessmen. Uh, here's a statement from a Houthi military spokesman, Yahya Sari, he announced in a video statement, if Gaza does not receive the food and medicine it needs, all ships in the Red Sea bound for Israeli ports, regardless of their nationality, will become a target for our armed forces. Furthermore, he posted on Twitter or X that his forces will prevent passage of all ships heading to the Zionist entity from any nationality if the food and medicine are prevented from entering the Gaza Strip and they will become a legitimate target for our armed forces. Out of concern of safety for maritime navigation, we warn all ships and companies against dealing with Israeli ports, adding that this was a result of the Zionist enemies' ongoing horrific massacres, genocide, and siege against Palestinians in Gaza. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, Houthi official Muhammad Ali al-Houthi said, in his post announcing the measure that no American or other military forces have the right, in quotes, to accompany Israeli ships or ships heading to Israel. Houthi rebels support Palestinians and have threatened Israel over the war in Gaza. The Biden administration has urged Israel not to respond to recent attacks by the Houthis, this from a Wall Street Journal report on Thursday. But Israeli National Council Chairman... Uh, can't say his name, <laughs> said in a Channel 12 interview on Saturday night, last night, that the international community does not deal with the threat posed by the Houthis in Yemen, that Israel will act. He did not elaborate on what measures would be taken. A little bit about the Houthis. The Houthi rebels swept down from their northern stronghold in Yemen and seized the capital, uh, Sana'a. 
in 2014 and launched a grinding war. A Saudi-led coalition intervened in 2015 to try to restore Yemen's exiled internationally recognized government to power. The Houthis are part of an axis of resistance against Israel, along with Hamas, which is also sponsored by Tehran. That's it in the story there. Uh, here's a kind of an update on the ground war in uh, Gaza from also Times of Israel from Emmanuel Fabian, who we deal with, deal with, redo his stories all the time. Uh, IDF chief Hamas rule in Gaza is faltering. Leaked video shows apparent gunmen surrender. From the Times of Israel staff and Emmanuel Fabian. Uh, the date on this is yesterday, I think. Uh, footage seek, uh, Saturday, so Sunday, early in the morning, Sunday, so Saturday. Footage leaked Saturday from the northern Gaza Strip showed an apparent Hamas operative handing over an assault rifle while surrendering along with dozens of Palestinian men to Israeli troops. As the IDF Chief of Staff Lieutenant General Halavi said the military was beginning to see the collapse of the terror group's governing system in the coastal enclave. In the video, the man could be seen slowly walking past a tank while holding a gun and magazine over his head before placing them on the ground. The other Palestinians, who like him are clad in only underwear, hold up their identifications card as they stand across the street from a tank and a shoulder, soldier shouts orders in Arabic over a megaphone. Images had secure, uh, circulated on social media earlier this week showing dozens of men being detained by IDF. The army spokesman later said it was interrogating everyone in the area who had surrendered after the fighting. Hamas operatives have increasingly begun, begun surrendering to the IDF in other areas of Gaza amid the ongoing fighting, according to military officials. Uh, here's some quotes from Lieutenant General Herzeg Halavi, who's the IDF chief of staff. He said, I see achievements every day. We are seeing every day more and more terror operatives killed, more and more terror operatives wounded. And in recent days, we're seeing terrorists surrendering, a sign, that the, sign of the disintegration of the system, a sign that we need to push even harder. Later, IDF spokesman Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari confirmed that many Hamas members surrendered Saturday to troops in Gaza, saying they revealed intelligence information on the terror groups functioning amid the ground offensive. Here's a quote from uh, Admiral Hagari. He said, from the interrogations of the terrorists who surrendered, the following intelligence has emerged. The situation of operatives on the ground is difficult, and the Hamas leadership, led by Sinwar, denies this reality, even though it is updated on the details. The operatives complain that the Hamas leadership is out of touch with the tough situation they are in on the ground. Hagari said there's widespread feeling that the Hamas leadership underground does not care about the public in Gaza who are above ground. Adding, this also worries the Hamas operatives. The intelligence that emerges from the interrogations creates more targets and aids us in our operational activity, Hagari added. Also on Saturday, the Khan public broadcaster reported that Hamas leader Sinwar had fled the northern Gaza at the beginning of the war by hiding in a humanitarian convoy heading southward. Citing an Israeli official familiar with the details, the report said that Sinwar escaped Gaza City and headed, toward, and headed south toward Gaza's Khan Yunus in a vehicle that was provided by humanitarian cover. More precise details about the vehicle were barred from publication, according to the broadcaster. 
The report said that Israel assessed that Sinwar is still in Khan Yunus, or rather in one of the tunnels that runs underneath it. Meanwhile, members of the war cabinet convened on Saturday night for the deliberations about continued fighting in Gaza, along with whether to allow Palestinian workers back into Israel after they were barred in the wake of the Hamas-led October 7 onslaught. An Israeli official told the Times of Israel on Friday that over 200,000 Palestinians from the West Bank and Gaza Strip were entering their third month without working in Israel as the IDF maintains a partial lockdown on the territories. Some 150,000 Palestinians from the West Bank had permits to enter Israel for work before the war, and over 17,000 Palestinians from Gaza also had work permits to, to work in Israel legally. Uh, the overwhelming majority of those Palestinians have remained at home since, as Israel has taken steps to fully disconnect from Gaza, while also maintaining significant curbs on movement in the West Bank, it says are critical for maintaining security after the October 7 Hamas massacre. A source familiar with the matter told Times of Israel that Israel was, began allowing roughly 8,000 Palestinians from the West Bank to return to work in recent weeks. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was asked about the issue during a press conference this week, during which he indicated that the security establish, establishment is pushing for Israel to gradually allow workers to return given that the mass unemployment in the West Bank risks destabilizing the territory further. I don't know if I'll stop right there. There's a couple more paragraphs, but I'll end there. Now we'll get to the budget stuff. This can be kind of tedious, but I'll do my best to get through it. Um, as promised, it's very important, obviously. Uh, the budget stuff, I really don't understand it. I know the basics. Um, there's authorizations, and then there's appropriations. Real quick, in case you're not familiar, this is very basic. Uh, watered down, in general terms, the way it kind of works is that uh, it's kind of a sloppy uh, example, but it's the one that I learned. So the difference between authorization and appropriation is the authorization, the NDAA, National Defense Authorization Act, is made up from the House Armed Security Committee and the Senate Armed Security Committee, Senate Armed Service Committee, HASC, and Senate Armed Service Committee. And the example is, say, uh, a kid wants to buy a bike, say a boy or girl, whatever, say it's a boy. He goes to the uh, his father and says, I need a new bike. Well, why do you need a new bike? Well, because the bike that I have, I've outgrown it. Uh, it breaks down all the time. It's not relevant. All the other kids' bikes uh, are better than mine, and when I go riding with them, they have to wait, so it's not relevant for what I need, and I've outgrown it, and it tears up all the time. So the father says, yep, you need a new bike. I authorize you to buy a new bike. So you need to go to your mother to get the money to buy the new bike because you're authorized. So the kid goes to the mother and says, uh, I'm authorized to buy a new bike. Uh, okay, that sounds good. The mother says, uh, how much do you want for the, how much is the bike going to cost? Well, the bike that I want costs $100. She says, okay, we don't have $100. I authorize you to spend $80 on the bike. So here's $80. Go get the best bike you can. Or you're authorized $100. Go buy the bike for $100. That's kind of the way it works. The services tell the House Armed Service Committee, the Senate Armed Service Committee, what they want in their budget, why they need it, 
what gaps are filling, why it's important, and they get either yes or no, and then finally, if it's a yes, then they go to the authorizations, the appropriators, and then they get the money for it, or don't get the money for it. What we're talking about now is the authorization, the NDAA. Um, so there's a part two to this, of course. So here we go. AUKUS JADC2, this is Breaking Defense, Justin Katz, 7 December. I told you it was tedious. Uh, AUKUS JADC2, planes and tanks, what's in the draft? 874.2 billion with a B in DAA. Justin Katz, 7 December, Breaking Defense. House and Senate lawmakers late last night filed their compromised version of the annual, pardon me, annual defense policy bill featuring a $874.2 billion top line with key provisions ranging from the transfer of nuclear-powered submarines to Australia to significant upgrade for Army Abrams tanks. The bill's top line represents a significant increase, $32 billion, over the president's request for FY24. So the president only asked for 842. The Senate and House Armed Service Committee are recommending 874. Since the start of October, the Pentagon has been operating off a continuing resolution, meaning all programs receive funding levels on par with the previous year, and brand new programs, also called new starts, are prohibited, which basically sucks for any uh, service wanting to do a new program. Uh, Now for the compromise bill, written jointly by a conference of lawmakers from the House and the Senate, to become law, both chambers of commerce must individually pass identical versions of this legislation. Then it goes to the president for a signature, and then it's the law, right? Uh, now, there's still a question as to if and when all this will happen, but if the bill passes in its current form, here are the key takeaways. We'll start with the Navy. For the Navy, one of the most watched issues in the compromise bill was provisions related to the trilateral security pact between Australia, United States, and the United Kingdom, also known as AUKUS. This new bill will authorize the Department of Defense to transfer up to three Virginia-class submarines to Australia, but only after one year elapses from the date of legislation. Uh, the authority to transfer the submarines was a friction point for some lawmakers, including uh, the ranking member of the Senate Armed Service Committee, Roger Wicker, who have been generally supportive of AUKUS, but insist that the United States must ensure its own submarine industrial base is shored up before sending boats to Australia. Uh, The legislation also establishes an account that allows the administration to accept funding from the Australian government to support AUKUS, which is one of the key requests the Pentagon made to lawmakers earlier this year. A senior Australian official has said uh, Canberra plans to pour $3 billion into the U.S. shipyards as part of the AUKUS arrangement. We'll go to the Army now. The proposed authorization bill keeps Army programs intact and provides the service with permission to spend additional dollars on a few key programs in this FY. For example, it provides the service with permission to spend up to $1.2 billion upgrading the M1 Abrams fleet, which is a significant boost over that 698 million requests. So the Army won is 698 million, and Congress is going to give them 1.2 billion. For future Abrams upgrade, the legislation authorizes the service to spend 88 million above the service requests to develop the path ahead for a mutual main future main battle tank upgrade. 
If appropriators follow suit, the additional development dollars could presumably help the service move out more quickly on the ambitious M1E 3 Abrams plan. Uh, we'll go to artillery. So as far as the self-propelled howitzer Paladin Integrated Management PIM program, the proposed package authorizes the Army to spend $674 million on procurement next year, which is more than 205, which is $205 million more than they requested. We'll go to Chinooks. Uh, the future of the Chinook CH-47 Chinook fleet, particularly the Block 2, has remained a hot topic on Capitol Hill. It's been roughly four years since the Army put the brakes on buying a Block 2 configuration, which seeks to uh, improve speed and cargo capacity over Block 1. Army aviation leaders are exploring what they want and what they need from a future heavy lift helicopter, and a decision on the Block 2 is expected in the FY25 budget request. Until then, though, the NDAA for 24 authorizes the service to spend $388 million, $380 million buying CH-47 Chinooks this year, which is $177.5 million above its request for four additional helicopters. It also authorizes the service to spend $41 million on Block 2 advanced procurement, which is $22.5 million more than they asked for. Uh, one more thing, on the water, uh, the service has enough money to buy one additional maneuver support vessel light this year. They have provided the authorities to spend $191 million, which is $42 million over its ass. So the Army made out. They got more than they asked for. Here's the Air Force. Uh, in a widely expected move, the bill will permit the Air Force to retire 42 A-10 Warthog aircraft, despite concerns that its successor, F-35, may not be able to match the Warthog's close air support capabilities. The legislation would also require the service to craft a long-term fighter force structure plan in conjunction with the Air National Guard and Reserve, which would permit the service to retire the F-16 C and D fighters. Officials would further be limited to only retiring 68 F-15Es through 2029, and must maintain the minimum fighter inventory of 1,112. Now we'll get to F-22s. Let's see. The bill will block other retirements sought by the service. Notably, the compromise legislation does not feature language permitting the Air Force to retire Block 20 F-22s, of which the service wants to retire 32 this year. Service officials have warned that money saved from these retirements is intended to fund the successor, which is the next-generation air dominance fighter. And if the F-22s are blocked from retirement, then the next-generation air dominance fighter will have to come up with the money from somewhere else. Problem there. Uh, also, the bill mandates that no RQ-4 Global Hawk reconnaissance drones can be retired through 2028 and extends a prohibition on divestments of C-130s used by the National Guard until 2024. Let's see what else. Like this year's NDAA, the Air Force will be required to keep the HH-60 Whiskey Combat Rescue Helicopter production line open, uh, a buy that service sought to end earlier over concerns that the platform is not survivable in a contested environment. Let's see what else. Let's talk JADC2. This is not Air Force. It's kind of like uh, 
like DOD. So elsewhere in the draft bill, uh, the Secretary of Defense wants to designate roles and responsibilities for the Pentagon's combined joint all-domain command and control, which they now call CJADC-2, and to prioritize all requirements of for the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. So any combined JADC-2 stuff will be Pacific Command-related first. Uh, lawmakers also want to be briefed by the Secretary of Defense every 180 days through December 31st, 2026 on CJADC-2 roles and responsibilities. A little bit of AI stuff here. The, the bill orders several studies on AI, artificial intelligence. Two of them are meant to apply to apply AI to logistics, directing the Air Force to launch a pilot program for AI management of fuel and aero refueling in a war zone where an enemy is attacking supply lines, and another one directing the Navy to study commercial best practices in AI and automation for maintenance work in shipyards. Let's see what else. Anything else here? That's probably enough. Uh, We'll go to Ukraine here. So the annual... Policy bill was filed late Wednesday, just hours after the Senate narrowly failed to pass a $106 billion supplemental funding bill that would have sent aid to Ukraine and Israel. This is a stiff blow to the president who said before the vote that it was overwhelming in America's national interest and international interest of all of our friends. The supplemental bill was voted down 49 to 51 along party lines. And like I said, I think... uh, I can't remember his name. Bernie Sanders, independent. I think he voted with the Republicans. Anyway, enough on that. So a little bit about the Navy. I'm going to deep dive a touch with the Navy and the, and the NDAA. And then we'll go to the Marine Corps. Good article about the Marines coming up. Uh, defense bill approves $1 billion for a new amphibious warship, blesses attack sub sail to Australia. The reason why I'm doing this one is because we talked about the San Antonio class uh, amphibious warships, and then this is mentioned, so that's why I'm doing this. Not recently, but a, a while ago. This is from USNI, 7 December, Sam Legrone. Congress is backing a Marine proposal to continue the San Antonio-class amphibious warship line with $1 billion in incremental funding for the proposed LPT-33, according to the NDAA. For two years in a row, the Marine Corps has placed a request for $1.7 billion in Flight 2 San Antonio-class warship that's been on the top of its unfunded wish list. The request from the Marines comes as the Navy has placed a so-called strategic pause on the new amphibious construction pending a study from the Office of Secretary of Defense assessing whether the LPD is, has the most, is the most cost-effective platform to meet amphibious needs. Uh, further support, Further supporting amphibious shipping the bill includes a Senate proposal that will fence off money from, from the Secretary of the Navy until the Secretary submits a 30-year shipbuilding plan that meets the statutory, statutory requirement to maintain 31 amphibious ships. In addition to the long-term requirement, the bill also calls on the Navy to maintain 24 amphibious warships in the short term. To that end, the bill prevents the Navy from decommissioning amphibious warships USS Germantown and USS Gunston Hall, and USS Tortuga. Those three ships were slated for decommissioning in FY23, so the Navy can't do that now. Uh, Let's see what else. Uh, I'll probably stop right there.
the bill authorizes a Navy shipbuilding budget of $32.9 billion, about $100 million less than the FY24 budget that the Navy requested. For some reason, the Navy's not getting 100 It's only $100 million. That's budget dust, right? Uh, the bill authorizes a Columbia-class nuclear ballistic missile uh, submarine, two Flight 3 Arleigh Burke, uh, Burke guided missile destroyers, two Virginia-class nuclear attack submarines, two Constellation-class eight, uh, two Constellation-class guided missile frigates, and $815 million for a John Lewis-class fleet oiler for a total of eight battle force ships authorized in the draft. Additionally, the bill includes language to allow the transfer of two Virginia-class nuclear attack boats to the Royal Australian Navy as part of AUKUS. And I'll stop right there. I think I'm done with the budget for a minute. Uh, Let's talk about this defense bill. One more thing about the Marine Corps modernization plan. So Force Design 2030, we followed it on and off for a while. Uh, It was the former commandant's uh, basically pet project. I don't want to say pet project. It was his brainchild, right? Uh, General David Berger, Commandant. Now he's retired. A lot of the uh, old Commandants and retired Marine Generals weren't sold on it. They they got rid of their tanks. They got rid of cannon artillery. They're taking, uh, they're creating these Marine littoral regiments out of regular infantry regiments. There's concerns that uh, this new Force Design 2030 is so focused on China that it doesn't give the other combatant commands uh, the required Marine Infantry Task Force or the Marine Infantry Forces that it's used to, all kinds of stuff. So anyway, with that as backdrop, the new defense bill calls for outside scrutiny of Marines' modernization plan. This is from Defense News' Irene Lowenson, December 8th. The Marine Corps likely will have to get an outside review of its controversial overhaul I don't know if it's controversial, but we'll go with that. Thanks to the provisions in Congress's defense authorization bill. The provision in the annual National Defense Authorization Act signals lawmakers are listening to retired Marines who have voiced concerns about the direction the Corps is taking. Uh, This is from retired Marine Mark Kansian, who is a senior advisor for the Center of Strategic and International Studies. Uh, Big think tank tie, ex-Marine, very smart. He's mentioned all, all over this article. Uh, the bill calls for the Pentagon to contract with a federally funded research and development center that will conduct an independent review, assessment, and analysis of the modernization initiatives of the Marine Corps within three months of this bill becoming law. The provision signals that Congress will get to examine the details of the modernization plan that critics have contended was created without sufficient oversight, a, a claim that the Marine Corps have denied. Since the 2020 unveiling of Fort Design 2030, which is a sweeping set of changes aimed at better preparing for a conflict with China, basically, the Corps has trained Marines to fight in stealthier dispersed groups and, and has shed older platforms in favor of new ones that will enable the approach to war. Force Design marks a shift in focus from land wars in the Middle East to potential conflict with China and the Pacific. As part of related initiatives that now retired Commandant General David Berger championed, the service also has updated its personnel management, training, and logistics. Some major changes, which include getting rid of tanks, cutting cannon artillery, and reorganizing traditional infantry units, 
have not gone over well with everyone in the Corps or retired Marine community. The retired generals who oppose force design hope the assessment will be very thorough analysis with many different perspectives brought together. On one hand, it could be just one of those routine efforts that don't produce much and isn't very interesting, but on the other, it could be uh, something with where these different different perspectives have brought together and fact-finding could help the core. Uh, Mark Kansing says he supports some of the Marine Corps changes in the Pacific, but has concerns of what he sees as a service walking away potential global responsibilities and combined armed structure. And Kansian's view, likely contenders to receive the contract to conduct the assessment would either be RAND, the Institute for Defense Analysis, or the Center for Naval Analysis. The outside assessment of the force design will examine questions that include in boiled down form, and here's the list of them. Uh, number one, what evidence does the Marine Corps have to back up its changes it's made? Number two, does a war in Ukraine make force design changes seem more or less advisable? Number three, can the defense industrial base in a timely fashion develop and produce the tech the Corps wants for force design? Number four, does force design meet the requirements of a combatant commander who leads forces across the globe? That's a good question. That should probably be number one. Uh, number five, does force design comply with federal law laying out the how laying out the required organization and function of the Marine Corps? That should be probably number one. And then the combatant commander is number two. Uh, and the last one is how should... Marine Corps prepare for future conflict. That's kind of open-ended. Anyway, within a year of inking the contract for the assessment, the Research and Development Center must submit a report on the assessment to the Pentagon. The Defense Secretary must then provide that report to the Congressional Defense Committees. And that's it. Uh, Actually, one more thing. The Marine Corps did not comment on pending legislation. What am I doing on time? 29 minutes. It's kind of a tedious episode here. What do we got left for stories? Uh, three stories. These should go pretty quick. Uh, this first one's a good one. It's a striker story. Upgun striker software problems resolved, says Army Two Star. Of course, the two star they're talking about is, where's his name? General Dean, I think his name is. I think I cut that out. Yep. Uh, software problems hampering the new Army's upgun striker have been fixed, and late next year, soldiers will begin receiving the eight-wheel-drive armored vehicle outfitted with a 30-millimeter cannon, a two-star general told Breaking Defense. So the the striker, there's eight brigades. This is not the article, but I'll tell you. There's eight brigades, six uh, active duty and two in the Guard. The Guard brigades, I think one's in Washington State and the other's in Pennsylvania. Anyway, they, they put a 30-millimeter on a few years ago in 2017 because the the second uh, cavalry regiment in Germany wanted them because of all the stuff that's going on with Russia and Ukraine. Stryker doesn't have nothing but a 50 cal and a 7.62 on it. And they saw all the stuff going on in Ukraine. So they said, oh, we need something bigger. So let's put a 30, 30 millimeter on it. And they did. And they sent them all to Germany, I think. I don't think anybody else got them. So the army said, hmm, that's a good idea. Maybe we should probably do that with some other brigades. Uh, so they did a program, a record to put 30 millimeters on, I think, four brigades of strikers. So that's what this article is about. They had problems with it. And now they think they, think they fixed it. So 
when the Army picked Oshkosh defense team for its medium caliber weapon system, that's what they call it, MCWS program at mid-2021, over General Dynamics land systems and Leonardo DRS, those were the competitors, it already knew there were problems with the winning bid, uh, the ability to mark targets and hit them on the move, which is probably not good, right? Then shortly after the award, the service disclosed it would proceed with risk management testing effort to make sure the double V A1 striker infantry carriers receiving the custom Raphael Sampson turret would operate as planned. So I guess the Oshkosh solution is a Raphael Sampson turret. Given the challenges, the Army decided to pause testing earlier this year and provide the company, Oshkosh, the time it needs to make changes. Uh, here's a statement from Oshkosh. Within weeks of the decision to delay the test, we returned to the test with the government to validate the system performance, which resulted in a decision to restart testing in August of 23. Once testing resumed in August, it proved that those fixes were adequate, and testing since then has been going very, very well. The Army is now accepting production vehicles with plans to re-enter operational testing in May of 24, which is very important, right? A key test designed to help determine if the weapon is safe and effective for soldiers to use on the battlefield. So May of 24 is like six months away. However, the new schedule means the Army will not meet its previously anticipated goal, having first unit equipped of the up-gun strikers by the end of the year, and now aiming to hit the target in late September uh, mid-December time frame. So based on what we know, this is not the article. So May of 24, they're going to do operational testing. If things work out great, they can start doing first unit equipped in the fall. Basically, first quarter of 25, right? September to December. Now, if things don't go well in, in operational testing in May, who knows what's going to happen? Back to the article. When it comes to Army acquisition plan, the Army still plans to field three striker brigades worth of these vehicles and has not allocated the money to buy the six brigades, which is what they wanted. So they've got enough money to do three brigades. They want to do six brigades. I already told you that there's eight brigades, six active, two National Guard. They've got enough to do three of the eight, but they want to do six. Uh, as the Army prepares to field the upgraded vehicle as a program or record, it is not the first time that the soldier will see receive strikers with 30 millimeter guns back in 2017 the second cavalry regiment in germany received the striker infantry carrier vehicle they call it the dragoon to fill an urgent need request we talked about that that vehicle was produced by general dynamics and had a Konsberg turret that fielding paved the way for the medium caliber weapon system competition where gdls submitted a bid sample with a Konsberg turret but according to one source selection document, the Army conceded that while one vendor provided multiple technolo technological advantages over the winner, Oshkosh, to outfit three brigades or 249 vehicles, what tipped the source selection scale is because Oshkosh apparently was $200 million cheaper than the other bid. I mean, that's sad to say, but the lowest bidder won, right? Anyway, 249 vehicles for three brigades. Let's do the math on that. What's three into 249? 83. So that's 83 per brigade. So if you want to do six vehicles or six brigades like they want, six times three is 18. Six times eight is 48. 498, 500 vehicles. 
anyway. Shoot, we might as well keep going. How would to do it? How all eight? A three times eight. 66. 664. If you want to do all eight strike brigades with these 30 millimeters, which I don't know why you'd want to do that, but if you did, that's 664 vehicles. All right, who cares? Two more stories. What am I doing on time? 36 minutes. Uh, we'll do the Germany story. U.S. Greenlight's potential $300 million torpedo sale for German P-8 Poseidons. State Department on Thursday gave a green light to a potential $300 million deal to sell 80 Mark 54 lightweight torpedoes and associated equipment to Germany. Uh, the sale will improve Germany's capability to meet current future threats by upgrading anti-submarine warfare capabilities on the P-8. Uh, Raytheon, who's RTX, makes the MK-54. Uh, it's a primary anti-submarine warfare weapon used by U.S. Navy surface ships, fixed-wing aircraft, and helicopters. Over the recent years, the United States has approved sales of the MK-54 to diff these nations, Canada, India, and Netherlands. It's designed to operate in shallow waters in the presence of countermeasures. It can track, classify, and attack underwater targets. Just days after Russia invaded Ukraine in February of 22, Berlin approved a $107 billion special arms fund <clears throat> to shore up what, what a report months later recalls, serious military capability gaps. And part of that military capability gap is the P-8. Uh, the number of torpedoes and dollar figures involved in the potential Mark 54 sale are not final and could change before munitions are delivered. And how much is it worth? $300 million deal. Drink some water. Last story. There's a good one. We're going to finish on a good note. Australia buys 129 South Korean infantry fighting vehicles and a $2.4 billion deal. Australia has awarded Hanwha Defense, who we know from South Korea, a $2.4 billion contract to deliver and support 129 Redback Infantry Fighting Vehicles. Representing the largest single investment in Australian Army capabilities to date, the contract also includes training and support system components. <clears throat> All 129 of the IFEs will be manufactured in Australia. Deliveries will run from 2027 to 2028. Uh, the roadback infantry fighting vehicle sits atop rubber tracks to minimize noise and vibration. It has an advanced layer protection system, including the most advanced armor and an active protection system. How about that? The Hanwall Defense Australia will manufacture the redback IFEs at its Hanwall Armored Vehicle Center of Excellence, slated to open in Victoria in the third quarter of 24. The plant will be built as part of the land 8116 Phase 1 Protected Mobile Fires Program and will manufacture Huntsman AS-9 self-propelled howitzers and AS-10 armored ammunition supply vehicles. In a press release, Hanwha Airspace subsidiary called the contract a historic milestone. This represents the first time a South Korean defense company has successfully developed a defense solution for the Australian Army. The order represents a further strengthening of Hanwha's presence in Australia next to the AS-9 and AS-10 Huntsman vehicles. And the ties between Australia and South Korea are growing rapidly, and we're excited to be part of the growing relationship 
That is from the Hanwha Aerospace President and CEO. That's it. 39 minutes. A little bit longer than I wanted to do. Uh, this budget stuff can be tedious. I'm kind of exhausted just doing it. We won't have to do this again until the appropriations come out. Anyway, that's it. Episode 202. Tedious episode 202 in the books. Hopefully you're still awake. But if not, thank you very much for listening. And good night.